Hi, everybody. Joining us online, welcome and good morning. And those of you here in Harvard campus, live and in person, it's great to see you. I'm super excited to report on our service last Sunday at River Forks. We had about 800 of you come, uh, which was like our biggest gathering we've had, period, in a long time. And, uh, and then the highlight of the day was 49 people being baptized in the river. Well done, church. Incredible. You know, I just, God's moving and it's a powerful display like those days where you see people tangibly taking a step forward. I want to thank you for praying and bringing people and just supporting those guys who are moving forward in their walk with the Lord. This is a total church effort. Let's keep trusting God for more changed lives and hearts for his glory, right? For his glory. Uh, let's keep going. All right. Let's also keep going in our study. Let's grab a Bible if you have one. Turn to the book of Acts as we press on in Dr. Luke's book about the early church. And if you're just joining us to catch you up a bit, we've been learning about the expansion of the first century Christian church, which was this phenomenal display of, of just like head-scratching beautiful things, like this group of unqualified individuals with no money, no experience, no power, no influence ended up turning the world upside down and altered the course of history, defying all rational explanations. And so we've been learning about the Christians in the first century. They pretty much had two things going for them. They had, one, a total, a total commitment to the message of the gospel. And they also had the Holy Spirit in their hearts. Their hearts were filled with the Spirit. So they had the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And we see uh, amazing things happen when People are, have those two things. So uh, we're going to look today at a shining example of how this is displayed, and we're also going to look at a tragic example that happens in this church because no church is perfect. Turn to your neighbor and say, no church is perfect, bro or sis. Some of you literally said bro or sis, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> no church is perfect. We got a lot of ground to cover. Let's start reading in verse 32 of chapter 4. Here's what Luke says. Now, the, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Verse 34, there was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so stop there and, and just like dive into this paragraph. Luke is giving us this quick snapshot of what church life was like in Jerusalem thus far. And he tells us these were some incredibly generous people, these Christians. And he says that like they had a unique view of their personal belongings. Nobody in the church like if you went over to somebody's house in the church, nobody was like, hey, this is my stuff, this is my house, this is my car, this is my dog, this is my cat, right? They, they didn't think in those terms. Rather, they had this unique dynamic where the, the, the church people were like, this, this is our stuff, my stuff is our stuff. 
They had everything in common, Luke says. They had properties in common, possessions in common, and they even shared their toothbrushes, okay? That's where this went. No, they didn't. I'm sure they didn't. <laughs> I'm assuming. First of all, I don't think they had toothbrushes, and I'm sure there were some limits to this. But I have to say, when we study this passage today, we look at this. Most people have, like Christians, we have two, two common reactions. The first reaction is very positive. We're like, wow, this is amazing. The, the, we just we admire this dynamic. These were selfless, kind, and caring Christian people, uh, and it's very admirable. And then the second reaction is, is like, but, but does this, should I be doing this? Uh, should, should I be selling my house and my car and, and my dog and my cat? If you have a cat, sell the cat for sure, okay? That's, like, that's a given, but going back to this, like, it's, it's written in the Bible, so that means I'm supposed to do this, right? And that is a good question right there, that question at the end. If it's written in the Bible, then I'm supposed to do this. And I want to talk about that question and wrestle with this biblically with you as we approach this passage and the book of Acts and the whole Bible for that matter. And I want to teach you a tool, a biblical tool in studying the scriptures that will help you understand both this text and then help you apply this text and the Bible as a whole better. And so let's go to your handout. If you have a handout, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll turn your attention there for just a moment. The, the heading is descriptions and prescriptions. Descriptions and prescriptions. And what this means is it's important to evaluate when you're reading a passage, whether it is descriptive or prescriptive in nature. Now, descriptive passages, let me describe them to you. They tell us what happened, all right? They describe, they describe something that went down historically. They narrate an event. They just tell us a story, a true story, right? Uh, and for application of a descriptive passage, we look and mine it for biblical principles within. So, for example, Jonah in the Old Testament. We met Jonah, and he's running away from God's call. Uh, and God's like, hey, go to Nineveh. And he goes to Spain, right, instead. And so we hear the story. It's described for us. David fighting Goliath is a descriptive passage. Jesus feeding the 5,000. What God did in Joseph's life in the book of Genesis when his brothers rejected him. They tell us a God story. Those are descriptive passages. Prescriptive passages tell us what should happen, all right? They prescribe what God wants us to do. They give us God's commands and God's promises for us. And they're applicable for today in most cases. God says, for example, prescriptively, love your neighbor as yourself, this is the Christian command. Like, that's not like, oh, well, what an interesting thing that I might, I might consider. No, 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 that's prescribed by God. Uh, God says, forgive those who have trespassed against you, those who have sinned against you. You've you got to forgive them, Jesus says. This is a command that pertains to us as believers. It's how we're to live. And that's very applicable. So passages like the Beatitudes, the sexual ethics passages in the New Testament, uh, worship ordinances like baptism, communion, these are passages, they're instructions and promises from God that apply to our lives via the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the Christian life. So it's critical, oh, wait, real quick, did, did, are, has everybody got that? We got that? Okay, given that then, it's critical that we do not read a descriptive passage and then approach it as if it were a prescriptive. 
And we kind of jumble those up or mix those up. It's critical that we don't do that. For example, obvious example, Goliath. David and Goliath. Goliath is this big lug, this uncircumcised Philistine. He's like 10 feet tall. And we meet him and he's standing in the middle of a battlefield and he is cursing God. He's blaspheming the Lord. He's talking all kind of trash out his big mouth, right? He's talking doo-doo. He's talking smack. He's talking, he's talking trash. And he's cursing God. And then David runs up, this little fella, this skinny little redhead, and he, he runs up and he's like, he's got this little this sling and, and, and he puts a rock in it and he's, he whizzes at, 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 at Goliath and it hits him in the forehead and, and it's really descriptive, it's kind of gross. It sinks into his forehead, probably kills him. He drops, just in case he's not dead, Goliath runs up, grabs Goliath's own sword and chops his head off and is like, God, right? Like he's like, yes. And, and I mean, that's like, it's like, oh, wow. That's, so, so we read that and it would be a massive error and a misapplication of scripture for then for us the next morning to go out and throw rocks at people who drop a JC bomb at your work, okay? <laughs> who blaspheme God. Duh. All right, obvious example. Less obvious, but still applicable. At the beginning of Acts, we read the apostles are gathering and they cast lots to determine who's going to replace Judas. They're making a decision by casting lots. But we mentioned previously in the series that we don't make decisions that way anymore. We don't keep dice in our pocket as believers. And when we have a choice, a decision to make, and we wonder what God's will is, like, hey, do I go to In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A, Lord, for lunch? And you just want, you don't do that. By the way, either one of those is fine in my book, okay? That's God in both of those cases. But I mean, it's just, it's, that's not how we make decisions. We don't read a scripture, that, that scripture, and then roll the dice. We're led, rather, by the Holy Spirit. So the text in, in Acts is, is descriptive. It just simply tells us a story of what happened in that moment in the life of the church. But descriptive passages have a lot of valuable, uh, they have a lot of value to us. Uh, they say, they tell us, this is what the Lord did in the past. This is how he operates. This is his character. He may never operate specifically that way again. We don't know. He may, he may not. But the fact is, he worked this way, and that tells us a lot about who he was and who he is. And the descriptive passages further, they include, as I said, principles and truths underneath the story that we dig out and we look for biblical proofs, uh, truths to apply them. All right, so that's what we've been doing, actually, for almost 11 weeks now in this book. But given these definitions, then, we can conclude that the book of Acts, this is your next fill-in, is primarily descriptive in nature. We have a historical description of what the Lord did in the, in the early church through the apostles, through the early Christians in Jerusalem and beyond. This is real history. It's describing how the church grew and expanded. It's not a prescriptive book where we read something and it's like, well, do it exactly this way. It's just describing what happened. Lots of principles to dig out. And so this helps us then, given what I just said and taught, this helps us apply, like if we apply that, that framework to, to this passage today, Acts uh, 4, 32, let's do that. Let's talk about it. So here's what we can say. The first thing to point out is that our passage today is not about selling the house and the car and the dog and living in a kibbutz, okay? It's not about that. 
What's a kibbutz? It's a Jewish hippie commune. Okay, that's what that is. Where no one owns anything and everyone shares all resources. I thought that was a lot funnier than you did. I don't know. I just, I just, that's fine. That's just how it goes. So, some, some people, though, when they read, now it's funny. Are you awake now? I mean, it's a, a kibbutz. Uh, even saying it, turn to your neighbor and say, kibbutz. Don't be a kibbutz. Uh, um, okay. Um, some, so what happens, though, is our passage, some people will read it and they'll force the prescriptive model onto the passage and then turn this into like an idealized way for Christians to live today, Right? And this is how God intended, they'll say, how God intended for Christianity to be lived. We should have all things in common and, and we should be doing this. But this, I believe, is a mistake of turning this into a prescriptive. I would also add that this also is not about redistribution of wealth. Okay, This is not Luke's commentary on economic systems or economic policies or governmental ideologies, nor is it teaching that if a Christian, one Christian has more material stuff than another, well, that's bad and evil, and God's going to try to you know, sort of even that out so everybody's the same. Um, again, many have read this passage and used this as a pretext Uh, for prescriptive conclusions on economic policies, even forms of government like socialism and communism. They'll say, ah, Acts 4.32, God is a communist, okay? Uh, Instead, what we do is we pump the brakes on that and we say, this is just describing what the Lord did in this church in Jerusalem about four months after it started. By the way, four months after it started, you had a ton of Christian refugees from other parts of the Jewish empire who were now living, who got saved and didn't know what to do and weren't going back home. And they're trying to figure out how to live for Jesus. And then you had a bunch of Jewish people who were now Christians in Jerusalem who were losing their jobs because they were now serving Christ and they're publicly uh, proclaiming that. And so they had needs. This church had a lot of needs because there was so much just like turmoil going on with their lives. So all of that goes into um, what this isn't about. What it is about on your handout, here's what it's about. It's about God's family taking care of one another when needs arise. That's what this is about. We take care of each other as Christians. Why? Why do we do this? Why? It's not just, it's not just random it it's, makes sense, logical sense. Jesus was generous with you and me, was he not? He has forgiven us. He has given himself. He gave up heaven, the advantages and the riches and the wealth of heaven. And the book of Philippians talk about that. And so Jesus is generous with us. And so then as a Christ follower, I'm now by his power, I'm generous with others. I can come alongside another brother or sister in Christ and meet a need. This is what the church has been doing since its inception and what we continue to do as believers. For example, at, at, at Redeemers, this happens in a lot of ways in our church, but we organize it a little bit through our compassion ministry. And it's, so I think it's a really good example of how we put this into practice. We have this team, this compassion squad, and, and it's, it's a team that's entrusted with distributing a portion of our budget to support people in our community who are experiencing difficulties and they have needs in their lives. So if you're a giver, like financially contributing to Redeemers, a part of every dollar that you give 
goes to our compassion efforts. And why do we do that? It's because we're applying the principles biblically that we read in passages like, like Acts chapter 432, this section. And so, uh, so we give, we also have a special compassion fund that you can give directly to. I think um, bolted to the wall, there's some boxes and uh, the blue color is for regular giving and then the compassion one, I forget what color that is, but that's there. So you can give right to that. Guys, it's just an amazing way that we can organize ourselves and live out what the apostles and the Christians were doing you know, 2,000 years ago. So having said that, can I just take a second to say thank you to any and all of you who are financially contributing to this church family and you're being generous with your money towards the church. And I wanna thank you for this because, because of your giving, we're able to show and share the love of Jesus in practical ways, meet needs, and come alongside people who have temporary situations that, that, are, that are just like, oh, wow, they need a boost of encouragement financially. You're, you're really helping those biblically, and I want to say thank you so much. You're such a generous church, and I, I love you all, but I just want to say for those who are giving, I just love you so much. Thank you for helping us uh, economically be the church. All right, let's, uh, let's keep going. We can, we can pull out then a biblical principle. Here's the principle that we can live by, and that's, it's on your handout. The gospel makes us less attached to our things and more attached to each other. This is what the gospel does. This is what happens when the gospel reaches us, you and me. Uh, our grip on our belongings becomes less tight. It's loosened, but our grip on each other increases like... Like we just hang on to each other. And this is a good thing. This is a really good thing, especially for Americans. Is it not? Can I get an amen? Even a quiet amen. I mean, like America is like all about the stuff and it's all about the materialism and we're about, you know, next month Costco's gonna bring out their Christmas stuff, right? <laughs> Yay, September, buy some Christmas stuff. Uh, actually, I think it's the end of August uh, Costco brings out their Christmas stuff. I stand corrected. Okay, um, but that's crazy, right? A little bit, like, right? I mean, just to touch on the materialistic side. And so it's, we're swimming in it. We're swimming in it, like stuff, 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 stuff. And, and, and so the gospel comes in, and as American Christians, we battle against this, and we apply our faith towards this. It's a little bit. And so, but here we see that this is normative, right? This is what it means. And so our priorities change because our hearts are changed. And we start caring less about our stuff. It's not a, that big a deal, and we start caring more about people and what God's doing in their lives and how we can help, right? So we do crazy things then, like we begin to give regularly. We don't just give when we feel guilty. We don't just give in the tingly moments. We, why is that funny? You laugh at that and not the other stuff. <laughs> we, we give so others can meet Christ and experience his life and find their purpose in Christ. So Luke then, as, as we read in this last section of, of our paragraph, he gives us a really great example of an individual who was living this out. He mentions a man named Joseph, who the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means, Luke tells us, son of encouragement. So Barnabas was a cool guy. He was a, such a fun, he was just like the best guy. And, and he, apparently he was a guy that like, you would love to be around. 
And if you were around Barnabas, like he would just like build you up and he would encourage you in the Lord. And we, we need Barnabases. Some of you have the gift of encouragement. You're like a modern day Barnabas and we love you. Uh, we, we just like be around. Will you just be around us more? Because um, we need that, right? Luke mentions Barnabas six times in the book of Acts. Here's the first time. The, the, one of the times we're going we're gonna to get to this later, but Later in Acts, the Christians get really freaked out when Paul becomes a Christian. Paul was a guy who was persecuting the church and sending Christians to prison and to their deaths. And then all of a sudden, Paul meets Jesus, and Paul shows up to church not to throw people in jail, but to worship. But the Christians couldn't figure out why he was there. So like, for example, if Paul at this time, he walked into our church and he sat there, no one would sit, be sit, the whole section would be like, it'd just like be Paul in the middle. They're like, we don't know, why is he here? Is, are we dead? Is he a spy? Is he for reals? Is he just pretending, right? And so no one wanted to be around this guy, except for Barnabas. Barnabas was the guy who went and sat next to Paul and said, hi, my name is Joseph. They call me Barnabas around here. And he sponsors him and he befriends him. And he says, hey, Christians, don't worry, this is legit. And he accepts Paul. This is like, he's such a good guy. He's later in charge of helping transport a huge relief offering to the Jerusalem church. More on Barnabas later. But here, at the beginning of his story in the Bible, we see he sells a field that he owns in Cyprus, where he's from, and he gives the money to the Lord for ministry use, and he's a great example of this generosity. Okay, now let's see a not great example. Let's keep reading in verse one of chapter five. Everybody's favorite section of the Bible right here. Here we go. (laughs) But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira, they also sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You've not lied to man, but to God. And when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Those were the interns in the church. (laughs) Verse 7, after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. And immediately, verse 10, she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And when the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Okay, let's receive an offering uh, at this point. (laughs) Such a cheap joke. Such a cheap church joke. Okay, so, but this is an intense passage, okay? It's intense. Turn to your neighbor and say, intense. 
Luke is juxtaposing Barnabas with Ananias and Sapphira. This is what's happening here. Barnabas is a shining example of gospel transformation and generosity. Ananias, on the other hand, and Sapphira, not so much. Now, they both are in the church. They both have fields, and they both sell those fields, and they both bring money to the Lord, and they both had their hearts filled. This is where the contrast happens. One was filled with the Spirit. The other was filled with Satan. Satan, by the way, makes his first post-cross appearance in the New Testament here in Acts chapter 5. Last time we saw Satan prior to Christ's crucifixion, he was planning to take out Jesus. But now we see his objective is to take out Jesus' church from the inside out. And when we read this, we think about the severity of this, of God's actions, and the commentators speak of this. The church was so new and so young and it was vulnerable, and we believe that the Lord was acting with like some, some force here to protect this new community, this baby church, from a very insidious type of deception and sin. And this was his plan. And so we can't be sure. We kind of wrestle with this a little bit. But ultimately, we have to trust that the Lord knows what he's doing, even when we can't see all sides. But if we get back into this text, that Luke is a little, he's careful with the details. He's telling us it's not wrong to sell an asset and only give part of the proceeds to the Lord. All right, that's not wrong. In fact, you know, he's like, pretty clear with Ananias and Sapphira, like, hey, it's okay to do this. Uh, and, and, it's, and, you know, this is, this is consistent with the Bible's overall teaching on generosity in the New Testament. We have a lot of freedom in our generosity. The Bible commands us to be generous as Christians. We are commanded to be generous with our money, not just Oh, I'm just a generous person in my personality. Great. Also, generous with your money, okay? But biblical generosity is a very spirit-driven process. So what we say around redeemers when it comes to giving our money to the Lord is we say, be generous, friends. Brothers and sisters, be generous as the Bible commands us. But we also say, ask the Lord what he wants you to give and then obey him. This is our approach. It's simple, it's freeing, it's spirit-driven, it's biblically driven. And so this is our, our generosity process here at Redeemers. I hope you find this freeing. Some of us have been in churches where it wasn't necessarily taught this way and it was very heavy-handed and it, was, it made you feel less than if you didn't give a certain amount or whatever. And that's just not what we want. That's not the spirit of Christ. So back to this, though, the problem here is that Ananias and Sapphira presented their gift as though it was the full amount. They said, we sold a field, and here's all the money. And it wasn't all the money. It is likely, now why did they do this? Yeah, okay, I don't know, but here's, here's, here's the thought. It's likely that Ananias and Sapphira saw the response that Barnabas got from the church when he did it earlier. Right, The church leadership was very grateful 
and they gave him, gave him a nickname out of the deal. He got a nickname, uh, and nicknames are cool. I mean, a lot of people get those in the Bible. Uh, so Barnabas got a cool nickname, and so Ananias and Sapphira, so they saw that, and I believe they wanted some, the same street cred from the community, from leadership, but they also didn't want to really be generous, and so they agreed to misrepresent themselves publicly to the church, first Ananias, and the result was he died, and then, and then three hours later, Sapphira. Like I said, intense, intense. Now, can I take a little side road for just like three or four minutes? Just, now whether you say yes or no, I'm gonna do it, so you might as well say yes. <laughs> Let's just take a little side road. It's, we're still headed in the direction, but the passage brings up something about Christian married couple dynamics here. So, so when the Bible speaks elsewhere of wives submitting to their husbands, to her husbands, we, we've taught on this. This is biblical for wives to submit to their husbands, their spiritual leadership, right? This is a beautiful way of living, albeit very difficult, especially in today's cultural climate. Can, can someone just give me a nod? Like that's, yes. The Bible is not speaking of following your husband into sin. Submission may mean you follow your husband into a mistake. Uh, husbands make mistakes, Christian husbands. Like, I don't know, what's an example? Like, maybe you've got a job change ahead and it's like, well, we could move here or move there. And so you both agree. The husband says, let's go here. And maybe it didn't work out very well. That's happened before. Uh, that's so different. That's an error or possibly an error, all right? This is telling us, don't follow your husband into sin. Christian marriage for wives doesn't mean your husband takes the place of the Holy Spirit. Each of us, my friends, men and women, husbands and wives, each of us have to answer to the Lord for our own decisions and actions and our lives, our choices. We're accountable to God. So ladies who are married in Christ, don't make the mistake of relinquishing all the responsibility for your life choices over to your husband when the scriptures are telling you that choice is sinful. And for the husbands, may I talk to you for a moment? Guys, don't lead your wives into sin. Don't do it. Or your family. It will impact them. Let me say it very plainly, fellas, my Christian brothers and sisters, brothers rather, who are husbands, be a Barnabas, not an Ananias. Be a Barnabas, not an Ananias. Encourage your wife towards Jesus. Lead your wife and your family into genuine generosity and not sin and deception. Guys, your spiritual leadership is a holy and sacred thing. It is. And so we, we have to use it gently and wisely, and it has to be given to us so that we can lead our families to Jesus and not the other direction. So how about that? How's that sound? Can we do this? By God's grace, we can. Okay, let's get back on the main road now. 
And let me quickly use our biblical framework and, 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 and look at the description prescription uh, framework and lay that over this passage. And what we see is that this passage is not about you better give or God's going to get you. Okay? That's not what this is about. It's not about any type of compelled generosity. That's the destination that you get if you were to read this prescriptively. But this is a unique experience, again, of this church at this moment in God's activity. So what this is about is the dangers of hypocrisy and of loving people's praise. This is a cautionary tale for all of us. You see, this couple wanted the acclaim and the appreciation of their church community. They wanted the street cred. They wanted the, the nicknames. They wanted the, oh, look how generous Ananias and Sapphira. They also sold a field, and all these people, are, 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 their needs were met, right? They wanted that respect, but they lacked the fear of the Lord. They didn't have the fear of God, and they didn't want to give their money away, and so they lied about their generosity in order to get people's praise. And this is, this is something that we can look at they pretended to be something they weren't. They were posers. They were posers. It was impossible for the church to know the difference between Barnabas and Ananias and Sapphira. But the scriptures are clear. The Holy Spirit knew. The Holy Spirit knew. God knew. And there are some people, and to some degree we're all like this a little bit, but some more than others, who go to church and we, we really want to appear on the outside like we have it all together, right? Right? How you, how you doing, man? Oh, I'm doing great in the Lord. And you're not, okay? But the Lord knows. The Lord knows. The Spirit knows our thoughts and our intentions perfectly. You and I, we cannot hide from God. You want to you see one of the most scariest passages in the whole Bible? It's in Luke chapter 12. Here's what Jesus says. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> scary. This is scary. And this is producing a healthy fear of the Lord in us, a healthy reverence for his accountability in our lives, which is good, but it's also comboed up with his grace. This leads me to the biblical principle in our passage that I want to cover, and just this is how we'll end, is that we should surrender areas of sin to the Lord. Did you, did you know that Peter, so Peter essentially calls Ananias and Sapphira, he calls them Satan in this passage. Why has Satan filled your heart? But do you remember earlier in Peter's life, over in the book of Matthew, didn't Peter get called Satan too? He did. Who called him Satan? Jesus did. But Peter didn't die. Peter was Satan and he didn't die. And so was Ananias and Sapphira. They, they did die. Why? What's the difference? You know what the difference between the two is? It's repentance. Repentance makes all the difference. Relying on God's grace. Peter repented. Ananias and Sapphira, they had a chance that they didn't. They continued to lie in the hypocrisy. Here's the thing. Guys, undealt with sin will kill us all, spiritually and physically. 
But with the gospel, we have an escape from our sin. And that's where repentance comes in. Repentance is where we acknowledge our sinfulness before God and we receive and ask for his forgiveness and our reliance on him and we turn our lives towards him and away from our sin. When we refuse to be honest about our sin and when we refuse to ask for forgiveness, that's when sin is fatal. And this is the gospel message. When we refuse to be honest and we live hypocritically, we refuse to ask for his forgiveness, our sin is fatal. There's this beautiful passage elsewhere in the scriptures. Many of us have memorized this. This is 1 John 1, 9. It says this, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so the repentance process is a healthy, beautiful process. It's part of what it means to be Christian. We repent, of course, when we come to Christ in our salvific experience, but we also practice a lifestyle of repentance, not to re-earn our salvation, but to get closer to Jesus and to reflect his love and his character in our lives. And so it's healthy for us to do this. And what we're going to do is we're going to end our service a little differently is I normally pray, but Jay and the team are going to come up or Jay is going to come up and he's going to lead us into some worship and a prayer of repentance. This is a beautiful passage. This is an intense passage. And thankfully we have God's grace and we understand using our biblical model of Bible study how to bring this into our lives and apply it. I don't want you to be discouraged. I don't want you to be, uh, I don't want you to feel like there's no, there's no, like how is this random? No, God does, God, God is offering us all an escape and a way through the sin issue. And so let's take that way of escape this morning and let's, let's practice this. Jay, I'm gonna turn it over to you. Guys, thank you for your time and attention. Let's continue to worship.